0: So you want to turn to your Bibles this morning. We're going to be in John chapter 1. We're going to actually do a two-part message. It's going to start today. It's going to end next Sunday. And it's going to be focusing on the idea of the Word becoming flesh. And when I lived in Kenosha, I volunteered at the local county jail as one of the chaplains who would come and, and hold services there or be on call in case one of the prisoners wanted to talk to a pastor. And and one of the things that would happen is very, very occasionally, one of the prisoners who attended the service in the jail would start coming to the church once they were released from jail. And oftentimes these people were, you know, people you'd have to come alongside and spend a lot of time with and and, um, give them a lot of help. And one of them asked me to attend a hearing on another charge that they had had that hadn't been taken care of as have this person serve their other sentence in the jail because there's a backlog in the state crime lab. And the public defender was gonna argue at this hearing that the case be dismissed because the prosecution was denying um, his client's ability for a speedy trial. It's a constitutional right. And if it wasn't dismissed though, and wasn't dismissed that morning and it went to trial, he was looking at 10 years in jail if this case goes through. So he was really nervous about it. He wanted me to be there with him and even stand up maybe as a, a character witness for him. And so I was at the courthouse with him. We're sitting outside the courtroom and the time passed that the case was supposed to be called. So you know, we're all sitting there going, oh, I wonder if one of the cases ran late or something. And, and then the bailiff came out and said, well, the judge, Judge Bastinelli in this case, had a family emergency and had to leave the courthouse and they were trying to reorganize the cases around the other seven judges that were part of the Kenosha County court system and, and see if we, they could hear some of these cases. So we waited and waited, and then the bailiff came out with a piece of paper, and he started calling off last names and case numbers and telling you which courtroom to get, go to. And they came to my friend's um, name, and they said, okay, uh, go to Circuit 8, Judge Bruce Schrader. My friend heard that and he immediately fell apart. He's like, not Judge Schrader. You see, Judge Schrader had this nickname among the criminals in Kenosha of his nickname was the Hammer. And Judge Schrader was a favorite of the police. The police loved this guy. The district attorney loved this guy because he was very harsh in his treatment of lawbreakers very harsh in his sentencing he never sided with defense attorneys in his rulings and had little to no mercy upon anyone who stood in his court if the law said 10 years you got all 10 of those years there's no chance of parole no chance of of leniency you got that 10 years He was also in the paper a lot, he was even on the television news sometimes because he would go into rants during sentencing, where he would sit there and and call the person an ingrate and a drain to society and call this person all kinds of names before standing up behind his bench and shouting, you're going to jail, 10 years, and he had this big oversized gavel. It was almost ridiculously big, and he'd go, boom, that's where he got his nickname, the hammer, from. And he, he was something else. And, and people look at God sometimes as being like Judge Bruce Schrader merciless, taking great joy in using the law of God to crush people before lever, leveling the maximum sentence allowed by law. In fact, about 10 years ago, sociologists from Baylor University released a study looking into America's different views about God. Part of the study was, um, they they got the help of the Gallup organization and they identified four distinct views of God's personality and his interaction with the world. And the researchers outlined the results as follows. They said 31.4% of people believe in an authoritarian God. And they described an authoritarian God as a God who is angry at humanity's sins. And he's engaged in every creature's life and world affairs, and the authoritarian God was just looking for a way of to crush people if he could, that he was always an angry type God. Sixteen percent believed in a critical God. A critical God had his judgment judgmental eye on the world but he really wasn't going to intervene that much. He was looking at them. He's like, gosh, these people are just ingrates. These people are sinners. He goes, I don't. I can't believe I created them, but he didn't do a lot to, to get involved with people. 24% believed in a distant God. A distant God is somebody who's a kind of a cosmic force that, that launched the world and then left it spin on its own, kind of like Uh, theistic evolution that God got everything going and then just kind of let it go and he's just going to stand back and watch and see what happens so those 24 percent of people believed in a distant God then there were those who believed in a benevolent God and those were 23 percent one who is forgiving and accepting of anyone who repents of anything no matter if even if they keep doing it he's going to forgive them no matter what that's a pretty large and divergent view of God, isn't it? That's a very different ways of looking at God. They're not new views, though. All these views have existed really for centuries. And for the Apostle John, whose gospel we're reading this morning, God to him, as a man growing up in Galilee in the first century, God was seen kind of like Judge Schrader. He was seen as this authoritarian, critical God who wanted to use the law found in the Old Testament to pound lawbreakers into submission, pound them over the head, and then send them straight to hell if they were disobedient. But then Jesus came and changed everything. And that's what we're going to read about this morning. John describes his best friend Jesus this way in John chapter 1, starting in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him, John the Baptist. John bore witness about him and cried out, this is the one whom I sent. He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let's pray. Father God, I ask, Lord, that you allow us to unpack the incredible richness of what John is trying to tell us here. Father, that you would open up our eyes, you would open up our hearts, you would open up our spirits to receive the living word of God as it comes to us this morning, Lord. Father God, allow it to change our thoughts, change our attitudes, and change our lives as this truth fills us, Lord. Take away any resistance, take away any any doubt, and let us believe what the Apostle John is saying about Jesus this morning. And that can only come through your Holy Spirit, Lord. I ask this in your name. Amen. Now the Apostle John was one of the most educated of the original disciples. He's also one of the most wealthy. And his writings can be, and because of that, and because of the way he writes, his, his words and his writings can be difficult to grasp because his words carry so much depth. And and it's very hard to get into every nook and cranny, scene. Just in verse fourteen here, where he's talking about the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. There's just so much right there that it's hard to get into all those nooks and crannies when we read it in English. And as I sat down to to pray and meditate through this idea, and I began to study what it means and all the implications that it that that comes to mind, it just blew my mind it was it reminded me when i first got to, to stand in the ocean and the lifeguards were saying you know you might want to come back in the tides about to come in you know get a little closer to shore because yeah it might be only knee deep right now but in about 5 minutes you're going to be underwater unless you get in get in closer to shore and i'm like oh i'm a good swimmer i'll i'll stand right here and then that tide came in i don't know if you've ever stood in the ocean when the tide came in and you think you can stand against that? You can't. It's just going to throw you right off your feet and you're going to be struggling for error. But then that's how I felt when I really started to study this verse right here of, and trying to understand the incredible depth of what John was saying about Jesus in these verses. So this morning I'm going to try to unpack this in such a way that it isn't incredibly boring to anyone who isn't a theology nerd like me while still doing justice of what John was trying to convey with this simple thought. And that first thought I want to talk about this morning is the word becoming flesh. Now being an educated man, John wrote the Gospel of John in classical Greek. This is an important as much of the meaning can be lost in translation. This is when, when we translate Greek into English, we lose a lot of that depth sometimes. And this might be a, a little bit of a review for some of you because it, rec- it was covered recently, but I wanna make sure you understand where we're going this morning. The Greek word for the English word, "forward" word here is logos. It has a lot of different meanings in the Greek language and its meaning is determined by the context in which it's used. For example, logos is the root word for our English word logic. That's where the word logic comes from. It comes from the Greek word logos. And so logos in the Greek language can mean that something is trying to become a philosophical truth, that you're trying to to prove something philosophically. It can also mean a legal plea or defense of a subject. One of the ways that we prove what is true, and the way an attorney in a court of law will prove that something is true is through the use of logic and through a philosophical truth. Or what I believe John is referring to here of what the word is, is the fullness of the law of God. That's what the logos means in this case. And the word that became flesh is referring to the Torah or the law that the Hebrew people had lived under for thousands and thousands of years. If they followed the law, they had blessing, they had God's presence, they had prosperity, they had all everything you could ever want in life. But if they broke the law, they would have increasing judgments, they would have God trying to call them back into repentance, they would have all kinds of things happening where God was saying, come back to me, come back to me, come back to me. Don't allow this sin to drag you away from me. And eventually if they refused, if they were stiff-necked, if they were stubborn, eventually they were. God allowed them to be conquered by other nations. And you would see this in Judges where they would have this time of revival and and you know everybody's going to church, everybody's living right. And then they started to drift away and drift away and God would allow other nations to come in and, and carry them away and they would be brought under subject of these different nations. We also see this in the kingdom era. You see this in First and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 King, First and Second Chronicles. That's all that was about. Israel and Judah sinning and allowing Assyria and Babylon to conquer them and take them away. And all these historical accounts were meant to be illustrations for future generations. That's you and me, the future generations that God is serious about us following his commands in the law. But then Jesus came. But then Jesus came. And the word or the law took upon itself flesh. And to many, it seems like God changed his character between the Old and the New Testament. Sometime like during that 400 years between the end of of Malachi to the beginning of Matthew that God just went to a beach somewhere and had a 400-year vacation. He got some sun, you know, relaxed on the beach, and became the kinder, gentler God. But that isn't the case at all. There really isn't any difference between how God handles his word in the Old Testament than there is in the New Testament. Let me show you why. For all you Bible students or all you people who have been around the church for a very long period of time, I would ask you, physically speaking, what were the scriptures or the law written on originally? Think about that. Did they have paper? Could they go down and get a copy machine and, and paper? No. What did Moses write it on? Moses was the first one to write the first five books of the Bible. Parchment. Parchment, animal skins, right? Parchment's animal skins. Papyrus, or ancient paper, was invented in Egypt hundreds of years before Moses. But Moses chose to write the law on flesh. And that's very interesting, isn't it? The word then literally became living flesh to dwell among us. The Greek word for dwelt literally means tabernacle, and that's what we're going to get into next week how God came and tabernacled and came and dwelt among us, came and became our neighbor. And the second question of this is that if it's written on the flesh, what were the coverings of the tabernacle made of? Tabernacle in the wilderness animal skins, flesh. So the law is written on flesh it's written and covered with flesh flesh was all about or all covered and all um integrated with the law and you're saying "Why does this matter this sounds like just a bunch of of trivial pursuit stuff that i'm never going to need to know because it was prophetic i don't think god wasted a single drop of ink when he told the holy spirit what he wanted written in the bible it was all prophetic and it was all meant to point to this verse right here. The word became flesh. It had always been that way. And the more I read the Old Testament, the more I see how God was using everything within the ceremonial and the moral law to point forward to the verse we are studying here this morning. And the prophetic word is that the ultimate fulfillment of all this law being written on animal skins, being written on flesh, covered by flesh, protected by flesh, is the word becoming flesh. So why did Jesus take on human form and live among us? In the beginning of the message, I was speaking of a judge that had little mercy upon lawbreakers. And that's how the people of John's day viewed God. And at some time, or in our time, some in our society would applaud such a judge. Somebody who's a law and order kind of person who believes that laws are there for a reason. You break the law at your own payroll. You break the law, you pay the fine, or you go to jail. I probably, in my own mind, leaned a little bit more to that side. But there's also a significant portion of our society that cries out for being merciful in how we deal with criminals, they say, well, you know, those criminals that are a product of their environment. Or they had bad upbringings. They grew up in a ghetto. You don't understand. They didn't have any positive influence. They got caught up in the wrong, cl- pro- or the wrong crowd. And, and these kind of people, they'll bring up every extenuating circumstance they can while asking for mercy, or maybe we should give them rehabilitation or education or lesser punishment for these kind of lawbreakers. And the word becoming flesh is the perfect balance of these two opposing views. You see, the holy requirements of the law were seen in the presence, the personality, the words, and the actions of Jesus while he lived on this earth. Jesus was the only person to live perfectly obedient to both the law and the will of God for his entire life. He committed no crime and therefore was was not guilty of anything deserving punishment. But we are. You see, you and I have committed high crimes against God's law, and we're deserving of the harshest punishment before God. And that's where the mercy comes in. The mercy of God is seen through Jesus taking the blows, taking the punishment, taking the whip, dying that substitutionary death on the cross for our sins. Paraphrasing what Paul, St. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who was without sin became sin for us. So that in him, through belief in him, through following him, through turning over our lives to him, we can have the same righteous requirements that God expects of, of from all of us. And that's the first and primary reason the word became flesh. The law was meant only to punish sin, took on the weakness of flesh, so that it could experience and take the same punishment that we deserve, so that it take, so we could still enter in to God's presence both during this life and the life to come. You know, people always say, "Well, I get to go to heaven when I die." Do you know that you can experience the kingdom of God right here on earth if you just faithfully follow Jesus? It's truth. It's in the Bible. The second reason that the word became that the word or the law became flesh is found in Hebrews four fifteen. I'm going to read that from the Message version of the Bible. Hebrews four fifteen says, "Now, now that we know what we have, Jesus." this great high priest with ready access to God, let's not let it slip through our fingers. We don't have a priest that is out of touch with our reality. He's been through weakness and testing. He experienced it all, but he did not sin. You know, when I was in the National Guard, I was sent to a specialized training. And that specialized training was how to be part of a response force to a state prison. Now, normally, the American military is not allowed to become involved with civilian um, law enforcement. It's called the Posse Comitatus Law, except during times of extreme emergencies where they declare martial or military law. But National Guardsmen have a special caveat under that law that in the case of a massive riot or a prison guard strike, that the National Guard will go in and take over that prison. And part of that training is learning how to use less than lethal force to subdue a violent prisoner or a violent outbreak and that includes pepper spray and and tasers we got to learn how to use both of those and to be certified in its use you need to experience what it's like to be on the receiving end of both so you get to be pepper sprayed one day and tased the next I was in my younger days during that time and a little bit more outspoken and kind of a smart aleck, and I said to the instructor, "He goes, I said, well, if we have to be pepper sprayed to be certified and we have to be tased to be certified, we're also being certified in rifles and guns. Do I have to be shot for this too? And the instructor laughed and said no. He said, the reason we're required to receive this training is this. He said, if you find yourself in a situation where you need to use a rifle or a handgun to defend lives or lives of others, that's a pretty cut-and-dry, clear guideline for that. He said, but less than lethal force is a bit more murky, and it's a bit more subjective. And he said, the reason that we make you go through this is because people are way too fast to pull out the pepper spray sometimes. People are way too fast to pull out that taser because it's not going to hurt you. I mean, it's going to cause some pain, but it's not going to hurt you long term. So they'll just tase people just willy-nilly and they'll pepper spray people willy-nilly. And we want you to experience what that's like. So you will take a moment and see maybe I could de-escalate this situation in a different way before just, you know, sending 25,000 volts through a person. In other words, we had to take the place of that prisoner and receive his punishment for wrongdoing, if just for a moment. By the way, I'd rather be tased 10 times and pepper sprayed once. That stuff stays with you for 24 hours. Just saying. Burns your eyes, burns your face. Maybe I'm just more sensitive to it, but I would rather be tased. But the word, Jesus, became flesh, so that this argument that teenagers will use on their, their parents of you don't understand what it's like to live right now. You don't understand what my life is like right now. You don't understand what it's like to be a teenager at this time. And uh, we'll use that same argument spiritually. You see, God doesn't understand what it means to be a human. Well, Jesus blew that right out of the water. Because the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. Jesus knows what it is to be tempted. Jesus faced the very devil in the desert in a death match of obedience. Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed. All of his closest friends abandoned him at the moment of his greatest needs. One of the the original 12 betrayed him and then the rest ran away also. The person that Jesus picked to lead the church denied him to his face. Jesus knows what it's like to face unfair criticism. Jesus knows what it's like to have people lie about him. Jesus knows what it's like to experience pain. Jesus knows what it's like to experience fear. Jesus knows what it's like to experience doubt. Jesus even knows what it's like to have a prayer go unanswered or have God say no. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane? Jesus said, please, Father, take this cup. I don't want to go to the cross. God said no. And Jesus knelt to the, the will of the Father. We have a high priest who can sympathize with any one of our human weaknesses that you and I can come up with. And yet he didn't sin in any of it. And that's why mercy triumphs over judgments. The word becoming flesh triumphed over the consequence of disobedience to the law. For anyone and anyone and Whoever would accept this grace of God, shown through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus our Lord, it's available to you too. And that's what the word becoming flesh means to us today. Let's look at one more side of this. And that's the word of flesh, or the word becoming flesh, is the death of religion. Let me illustrate this. There was a missionary who was speaking to a pagan and telling him about the gospel. Well, the pagan had several questions of the missionary. He said, well, where's the temple I go to to worship your God? The missionary said, well, we really don't have a temple. You see, we worship our God in spirit and in truth, and our God resides inside of us. And the pagan was amazed. He goes, well, 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 what sacrifices or or how do you appease your God? What do I have to do to, to gain His favor? The missionary replied, no, 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 no. There's no sacrifice that we can bring. Our God took upon Himself human flesh and died in our place so that we can live with Him now and forever, that He who was without sin became sin for us so that we can have the righteousness of God. We don't have to do anything other than accept it. And the pagan was growing frustrated. He's like, I I can't believe this. What are you you saying about what mighty deed? Maybe I have to do some mighty deed to, to earn your God's favor. And the missionary replied with tears in his eyes. He goes, no, no. He goes, that's the best part. God has done that mighty deed. And he brings the benefit of that mighty deed as a gift for us. All we have to do is accept it. And I want to close with this thought and this prayer for all of us this morning. That God would place within us a deep appreciation and understanding for Ephesians 3.18, which asks that the Holy Spirit gives us the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep the love of God is for all of us. And not only all of us, But all of these people outside of these walls, too. Let's all stand. If we are able to do that, it will enable us to trust Jesus with everything in our lives. It will enable us to trust Him with our struggles, with our sins, with our addictions, with our desires, even our failures. We'll credit Him with our successes. And we'll trust him with our eternal souls. And I just want to take a moment this morning for anyone here who this might be a new idea to you. You've never heard this kind of message before. You don't have to do any great deed. You don't have to do anything other than believe. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whosoever, whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. All you have to do this morning is believe. Believe that Jesus came and died for your sins. Believe that he is resurrected and wants to take you to heaven with him someday. And believe that he wants to take up residence in your heart, your will, your soul, and your spirit so that he can help you run your life in such a way that is pleasing to God the Father. If that's you this morning, just make that transaction with God. Say, Jesus, I believe. I believe. Turn your heart over him this morning. For the rest of us, I just pray, Lord God, I lift your people up to you right now. And I would ask, Father, that this, the wonder that I've tried to convey this morning of the word becoming flesh will be renewed in their hearts. That it will be a point of worship for them this week. That it will be a point of coming to you and saying, Thank you, Jesus, for everything you have done for me. Forgive me, Lord, where I've tried to, to wrest control over my own life. I offer it back to you now. You did it successfully. How foolish am I to try to do it on my own? I give my life to you again. And Father, I just ask, Lord, that you just bless your people now. Bless them with the joy of the Lord. Bless them with a newfound appreciation and passion to live for you this week, Lord. So that other people can watch their lives and say, I need what you have because that's the reason you have kept us on this earth, to bear witness to the glory of God. Jesus, I just bless your people now. Use them to win souls and spread the gospel through word and deed this week. And I ask this in Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen, amen. Amen. God bless you and thank you for coming this morning.